online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, the fight against the weed rice grass in Tasmanian waterways. Uh, and it was introduced into Tasmania in the early parts of last century for maybe a number of reasons, possibly to stabilise the banks and create channels for boats to get through. But it is invasive. Once it's taken hold, it's explosively expanded into those estuaries and, and taken over. And waiting for more rain on Tasmania's northeast coast. I think we had two mills in December, three mills in January, very little in February, and then we had a big thunderstorm across most of the grazing land that I graze. We had between 30 and 50 mills, so if we can get another rain next weekend or something like that, we might be up and away with a bit of luck. The autumn break for one farmer in the northeast. Plus moves to eradicate rice grass from a northwest waterway. Those stories coming up for you today. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday, where we also look at the latest predictions for the value of agriculture in Australia this year, edging closer and closer to the $100 million mark. And the latest from the receivers of big transport company Scott's Logistics, whose assets will be sold off. Some wild, windy weather throughout the state today, so we'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage of the show. And also take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 936, that number 0438 922 936. First up, Talking Wind, the latest on a wind farm in the northwest. And the company behind the Robins Island Wind Farm will appeal against a five-month shutdown clause included in the Environmental Protection Authority's approval of the project. The EPA believes the proposed site of the farm is a migration area for the critically endangered orange-bellied parrot and ruled the wind farm could not operate during that migration period. ASEN Australia Chief Operating Officer David Pollington says the wind farm operation would not be viable with that restriction and he says the company is confident it can win the appeal. We had a long, hard consideration of uh, the conditions that have been placed on the project and the implications for actually building and operating a viable project. And uh, we came to the conclusion that uh, the five-month shutdown that was being proposed in condition FF6 just simply meant the project could not proceed. Is that sort of a restriction anything you've seen before in any wind farm operation or proposal? No. Look, I've been in the industry more than 30 years now and I've never seen anything uh, like that. Um, It is completely without prison in my experience and certainly had not been communicated, discussed with us uh, in any shape or form during the uh, six years of work that we did with with the various government departments. It's also at odds. uh, We have FF5 and FF8, which are two conditions that relate to orange-bellied parrots, which arguably you don't need those two conditions if you have FF6 in place. So it's even confusing in that sense. So what sort of result would you get if that stood and you operated the wind farm? Would it be a loss completely? Yeah, so we we would have to charge. uh, Our cost of electricity would be too high. So um, you could proceed with the project if people were happy to pay uh, higher electricity prices, but that's not the reality. We want these projects to be built to drive uh, electricity prices down and provide for cheap, uh, reliable, renewable energy to help develop a uh, new industry in Tasmania and provide for some of these uh, initiatives that the government's pursuing around hydrogen, pumped hydro 
and, and other green industries in Tasmania. Who do you appeal to? So the process in Tasmania is that we ap- appeal to TASCAT. Uh, so we can only lodge an appeal once the council had uh, provided their approval, uh, which you're probably aware uh, was done a little over 14 days ago. Um, we have 14 days to appeal once they formally noti- notify us of their decision. And uh, that time is now up. And so we've lodged an appeal against the EPA conditions in that in that approval. TASCAT is an independent body that's been set up to actually hear these matters. Uh, TASCAT can hear planning matters associated with planning approvals and it can hear matters associated with the Environmental Protection Agency's uh, approvals. How long do you think the appeal process will take? Uh, look, it, it, the legislation around it is notionally set at 90 days. But look, the reality is that's 90 days if everything goes to plan and none of the parties have sought a, uh, a halt on proceedings. Uh, we would expect it to be more like six months, um, to, be, to be frank. So you're expecting six months? It's, it's likely to be of that order, yes, Tony. Um, because of you know, these complex matters to be considered by all parties and presentation of information. Um, and so, you know, it's not, not to be rushed. It's not, a, not necessarily a simple matter. Uh, and look, there's some ongoing investigations which, uh, you know, may be useful to uh, have that information considered. Just to remind us, why did the EPA put that condition on the proposal? The, our understanding of the reason for the condition is that essentially they don't know um, where these birds fly. And in the absence of knowing definitively that they don't fly through there, they have taken them what they call the precautionary principle, and that is cease any sort of development in that area in that time period. Now, it should be noted that the uh, recovery plan talks about obstructions, you know, whether they be buildings, they're lumped into the one category, buildings, wind turbines, uh, other sorts of towers, transmission towers, light towers and so forth, are all just considered obstructions. And so it's not known whether these are actually uh, provide much of an impact to the birds uh, and it's also not known whether they actually go across the island. None of our um, observations support that. Uh, there are no records of it. And the last time a bird was seen to the west of Robins Island was 2003. So they've taken what they're calling the precautionary principle to say, well, because we don't know definitively, no, then we will put a, a halt on it. Are you appealing in hope or in confidence? Oh, absolutely in confidence, Tony. Um, we wouldn't have uh, embarked on this. It's not a it's not a cheap exercise to do. Um, we wouldn't have embarked on it if we didn't think that we were well placed. And uh, uh, we we uh, are firmly of the view that we have information that will provide sufficient confidence for the condition to be uh, amended or removed um, to en- enable um, uh, the project to proceed. And in the scenario that you lose the appeal, what then? That's a difficult question to answer at this moment. It can't proceed as it's currently um, proposed. If we lose the appeal, uh, then it would depend on what the the basis for losing the appeal was uh, because you then have recourse through the courts to make one final um, appeal. 
Um, but it would depend on what the position was, Tony, so it's very hard to speculate at this point in time. We're confident that we'll get a change in the condition to allow the project to proceed. As David Pollington, Chief Operating Officer for the Australian arm of ASIN, the Philippines-based multinational renewables company, talking about an appeal to the Tasmanian Civil and Administrative Tribunal against a five-month shutdown clause included in the EPA's approval of the project to protect the orange belly parrot. 0438 You might have some thoughts on that. 0438 That number. How has Australian agriculture fared over the past year? The Australian Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics, or ABARES, has crunched the numbers and revealed the results at its national conference in Canberra today. Our reporter, Alice Marshall, is there. Good afternoon. I'm here at the 2023 ABARES conference, which is where the government's been crunching the numbers on the agricultural sector over the last financial year. I'm here with the National Rural Reporter, Kath Sullivan. Kath, can you please tell me what does the latest report tell us? Alice, first of all, it's so good to see you here in Canberra. The numbers are in and I can tell you officially it's been a bloody great year for Australian agriculture. For the first time, Australian farmers have produced $90 billion worth of food and fibre and a record-breaking $75 billion worth of exports. Um, Now, this has largely been driven by great conditions. Um, I know that a lot of people got a little bit too wet over the past year, but by and large, it's helped Australia produce its biggest ever winter crop, um, something like 67 million, 64 million tonnes. There's too many numbers here for a journalist like me, but 64 million tonnes across the country. And that's been met with really high prices due to a number of reasons, um, including the conflict in the Ukraine, um, global shortages, the impacts of COVID on the supply chain. There's a number of factors playing into that. But um, I think that Australian farmers will be delighted to see that this has been uh, their highest value year on record yet. And so a bumper crop that we've seen here on the eastern side of Australia, and that's been matched over in the west, is that right? I would say absolutely more than matched in WA. It's been a record there, 25.6 million tonnes of winter crops. So we're talking things like wheat, barley, canola. Now, this is 61% higher than the 10-year average and 9% higher um, than the previous WA record of 23.4 million tonnes, which was only just set last year. Um, And this has contributed to some really huge on-farm incomes for grain growers. I mean, um, we'll get to talking about inputs and the cost of doing business in a moment because I can hear people saying, hang on a minute, my car's never been so expensive to run or um, I can't find workers. But um, when we look at on-farm incomes, according to ABARES, which is the government's commodity forecaster, the average cropping farm income this past financial year was $665,000. Now, that's on average, and I don't know um, how common average is. Um, That certainly sounds like a huge figure. It was also a record figure for dairy farmers this year. They've seen some high returns after um, a 
fairly rough trot. I, I think you could say more bad years than good in, in recent times. And dairy farmers on average have had an income of 390000 which is up from the Broadacre um, farm average of 371000 which actually fell back a little bit this year on last year. I think it was down about 7%. And some of the reasons for that might be the fact that fertiliser costs are absolutely through the roof. I think two and a half times what you might expect. And of course, with the flooding, we saw a lot of damage to some crops and uh, importantly, a lot of damage to roads as well, which has really slowed up the supply chain. Yeah, but as you touched on, despite some, some very difficult and trying conditions this past financial year, we have seen a fantastic outcome and mm. that's been... The is it the third fantastic outcome in a row? Well, I think it's a fantastic outcome. I'm sure there'll be somebody listening who can tell me there's a reason why this isn't a good thing. But um, this is $2 billion up on last year's record, $88 billion. That was unheard of um, at that time. Now it's $90 billion. Of course, the industry has set a goal led by the National Farmers Federation to be worth $100 billion by the year 2030. Um, it might seem like it's getting within reach, but ABS Chief Economist Jared Greenville has warned that it's unlikely that we'll have another record-breaking year next year. He points to just two examples of a run of um, three good years in a row, one in the 70s, the other in the 90s, and he really points to this as being the high watermark. Here's a little of what he had to say. The expectation, unless we get a return of these kind of seasonal conditions, which would be very unusual in the historical record, three run of good seasons only happened twice as far as we can see looking back, once in the 90s and once in the, in the 70s. Um, so it's more likely that we'll shift to a, a more normal but harder environment um, to work in. And so in terms of production outcomes, it's likely for the next couple of years that this is the high watermark. Um, and what will grow sector value going forward will have to be price and the prices that we get and that's where international markets will be very important. That's Jared Greenville from ABEARS there. So Kath, what is the report saying when it comes to the next financial year? Well, when we look at the headline figures, um, it's forecasting that the value of farm produce next year will be $81 billion, so back by $9 billion, and farm exports will also fall by $11 billion to $64 billion in the next financial year. And you heard um, Jared Greenville really touch on it there in that grab, that if farmers do want to boost the returns, the way to do that is most likely going to be by value-adding their product and um, finding new markets or getting existing markets to pay more for their produce. And I think that's the thing we're going to hear a lot about here um, at the ABARES Outlook in Canberra over the next couple of days. So hopefully more to come when it comes to how to actually do that. And we're going to find out. Well, when you think about it, Alice, I mean, um, we've seen our biggest winter crop. There's been more land planted than I think ever before in intercropping. Um, so farmers are really making the most of what they've got of, of the natural assets and of this high rainfall. And hopefully they'll be able to capitalise on the high soil moisture again in the coming year. But uh, yeah, there is a bit of a warning there that, um, that perhaps this is as good as it's going to get for a little while. It's our National Rural Reporter, Kath Sullivan, ending that discussion with Alice Marshall from the ABARES Conference in Canberra, where agriculture is predicted to be worth around $90 billion.
this year. A couple of comments on the uh, Northwest Wind Farm at Robins Island. Paul from Blackman's Bay says there are lots more threatened species at risk than just the uh, parrot, the orange-bellied parrot. And Ian writes, oh, it's very long, this one, Ian, but basically he's saying uh, the EPA never progressed to consider lethal impacts from the wind farm on other critically endangered species, including 25,000-plus migratory shorebirds, including a population of 38 far eastern curlews that were recorded recently near the jetty. And just like the orange-bellied parrot, these birds are classified critically endangered. Thank you for that, Ian, as well. 0438 922 936, that number. Coming up, the curtain coming down for the final time on the Scots Trucking Empire. No one in Australia should be dying from anorexia. Four Corners investigates a hidden health emergency. An alien has replaced my daughter. And the Australians suffering in silence. I would prefer to tell someone that I'm addicted to meth. The system is broken. Crisis is the only word you can use. Fading away, Australia's secret battle with eating disorders. That's how she's remembered. That's wrong. Streaming now on ABC iView. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. We've been talking a fair bit recently about the Scots logistics situation and latest is the administrators for Scots Refrigerated Logistics say they've not been able to find a buyer for the trouble business. It's the National Freight Company employing some 1,500 people and counting supermarket giant Coles and Aldi among its clients. The company did enter voluntary administration last Monday, but since then a buyer could not be found and the business will now be wound up. Scott Langdon, partner from Cordamentha, explains. Went out and actively sought interested parties to see who would be able to buy the business and continue it as a going concern. But given the financial position of the business and the severity of the cash flow and negative position that business found itself within, we were only able to run a very short sale process. And uh, ultimately, none of the interested parties who were very strong counterparties, good bona fides, would have been good purchasers could uh, transact within the time frame uh, that we're looking to transact within. And ultimately, we made the decision on Friday afternoon that um, a going concern sale wasn't uh, available and will commence uh, a wind down of the operations. Customers were advised late Friday afternoon. Um, the employees were advised late Friday afternoon that the business will be winding down. But I suppose what's transpired since then is that um, it's very clear that uh, we are probably going to enter into a uncontrolled wind down due to the financial situation of the business. That means that um, you know we will be, in all likelihood, not being able to produce products, um, our services to customers, and the customers won't be able to ultimately deliver to the retailers on a on a business as usual basis. Um, I can say that Nick Cap, the CEO, has done a tremendous job of rallying the senior management team to put a plan in place to try and mitigate the loss. And, you know, the 1,500 employees are incredibly passionate about their business. And what we're trying to do is to make sure that we can wind the business down in a manner that has harm minimizations to employees, to suppliers, to customers. But that challenge is becoming bigger and bigger and harder and harder given the financial state of the business. And as we've advised customers today, as we've advised um, third parties that, we don't have confidence that we can do it in a controlled manner, given the financial severity 
um, that the business finds itself in. And we are now trying to do our best to work with stakeholders to sort of slow down the wind down. But at the moment, um, we're finding it incredibly challenging given the financial situation of the business. Yeah, the, the term uncontrolled wind down, does that suggest really that there are even a lot of unknowns about what sort of work and how you're going to do it from here? That's right. But we, we spent a lot of time with management over the weekend and and one of the things that we're trying to work out, where's the impact going to be felt most? And, and the team, my team and the management team have worked together and it's clear that the, the, the logistics, Scots is a massive logistical provider to the regional parts of Australia and um, that's likely to have an immediate impact on the farmers and the small to medium businesses there because um, the product that's currently in the ground or being picked by the farmers around the country would be reliant and been planning on Scots to transport their product around the country. And one of the customers said that, you know, we've got 5,000 pallets of fresh watermelons in Bundaberg that were going to be taken by Scots in the week ahead. We won't be able to produce that. And the specific pockets, which we think are going to be probably the most exposed, and we're just trying to work out how we do the minimisation of the harm. But far north Queensland, uh, the Mildura region, the Riverina, uh, Renmark in South Australia, the pockets where... Um, our planning um, with management feel like they're most exposed, but the business is in such a financial state that absent some support financially from outside the business, that it's likely to go into an uncontrolled wind down, albeit you know, the, the management team and our team are doing everything possible to minimise the damage to, to, to customers and to ensure we can still pick up the produce and also you know, get it onto the shelf. So not being able to find a buyer and going into an uncontrolled wind down, what does that mean for Scott's employees? It's it's tragic, and you know, the, the, for the employees that you know, you, you speak to the employees and see how proud they are of their business. There's a lot of employees who have been there for such a long time, and if we had some more financial assistance, we could see the business close in a in a very dignified way, in a in a way that has harm minimisation to employees and customers. But um, ultimately, um, the business will be wound up and and the employees will not be employees of Scott's going forward. And uh, we are doing what we can to try and find uh, new opportunities for employees. The, um, the customer group um, and stakeholders around the business have been incredibly generous with reaching out to try and re-employ um, re the employees. So we are you know, doing all things possible to, to connect new employers with the employees. And you know, ultimately, you know, our heart sinks for the employees for the situation they find themselves in, the uncertainty that they find themselves in. But what we need to do is hopefully we can get some external support, close the business down in a meaningful and dignified way so the harms are reduced and hopefully facilitate new employment for the, for the staff, for the 1,500 staff who have been so incredibly loyal to the business but also been incredibly supportive of the Cordamenta team since we um, got involved. Yeah, we're speaking to Scott Langdon, partner of Quarter Mentha here on The Country Air about the future of Scott's refrigerated logistics. Uh, what timeline do you have for the wind-up of the business? What sort of period of time are we expecting this to take, Scott Langdon? Our planning is on the basis that um, the wind-down will start uh, the back end of today, early tomorrow, or could start as that early, absent getting support from um, external parties to help us as I said, with a methodical, um, respectful wind-down. And when you say absent of support from external parties, what parties could help? Are you, could you expect or ask for something like government assistance here? Uh, we haven't received any assistance from government um, through this wind-down. We've been in positive dialogue with them and they've been very open 
uh, with us and very respectful of the situation, but no money has come through from the federal government. We have asked uh, a number of times for financial support, but uh, we haven't. that has not been forthcoming yet. We've been asking of financial support from customers who have been um, willing to pitch in, but um, it's a challenging situation for a lot of stakeholders. And then suppose then in terms of the customers as well, you, you mentioned those areas and I imagine a lot of farming communities and food producing communities where they're expecting deliveries like far north Queensland, Sunraysia and, and Riverina among those other areas you were saying. What about the people they deliver to, supermarkets among those? Are they going to find it difficult to get these deliveries if Scott's winds up this quickly? Based on my engagement with the management team, we think that um, especially the smaller to medium-sized um, retailers will feel the impacts of it, um, absolutely, especially in those regional towns that I mentioned earlier. And in terms of creditors to Scots, uh, are they likely to see any of their money again? Uh, we're not too sure what the financial construct looks like at the moment. Um, at the moment, we're trying to look after the customers, look after the employees, and ultimately suppliers and creditors will be looked after if we can do this in a methodical and um, the wind down in a, a meaningful way. This is obviously a large part of Quartermentha's business that you're working in. Does it usually work this fast in terms of when you you come into a business and within a week uh, you've got to look seriously at winding the business up in an uncontrolled way? Yeah, Warwick, um, this is a very unique situation. Uh, in my 20 years uh, with Quartermentha, uh, this is definitely probably the most intense uh, situation that we've found in terms of having to make decisions around operational continuity and and uh, the rationale for that is because of the financial position of the business was so fragile and such in a cash flow negative position. These are the decisions that needed to be made quickly. Um, and unfortunately, it's uh, not been able to see a fulsome sale of business process. Unfortunately, we couldn't see Scott's be transferred to a new owner to see it turn around and become a, a business, a strong business into the future. Just the severity of the financial position the business found itself in. Um, it was very challenging and uh, yeah, a very unique situation and one that puts a lot of stress on stakeholders like employees, um, like customers, like suppliers. It causes a lot of stress and I really do empathise for all of the people who are involved for this situation. It's, it's, uh, the uncertainty is, is very, very challenging. Scott Langdon from Cordamantha speaking to Warwick Long about the decision to shut down transport company Scott's. Uh, Scots do have no presence in Tasmania, but the issue for Tasmanian producers will be when their goods are transported to the mainland. They may not be able to be distributed to where they should go in the short term until something's put in place. Clint from Scottsdale says the receivers just talk the talk. As an example, the northeast sawmills. Thank you for that, Scott. Uh, coming up, eradicating rice grass in Tasmanian waterways, plus soil testing in the northeast of the state, and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thanks, Tony. Investigators of the deadly mid-air collision of two helicopters above the Gold Coast Broadwater in January say the pilot of the helicopter coming into land did not hear a taxi call over the radio by the pilot taking off. But the Australian Transport Safety Bureau says it's possible the call was made. Four people died in the crash. The federal opposition will oppose attempts to set up a ballot system for a new Pacific visa program. Last month, the federal government announced a new visa allowing up to 3,000 people from the Pacific to migrate to Australia. 
The Australian Lawyers Alliance is calling for changes to criminal prosecutions in Tasmanian courts to help relieve lengthy backlogs. Unlike other states, there are no timeframes in Tasmania in which police must tender evidence with the court in the early stages of proceedings, meaning it can take weeks or months for people charged with crimes to see the evidence against them. The Law Society has written to Tasmania Police Commissioner Donna Adams to request a change to these processes. And a couple in Spain's been jailed for four years for stealing 45 bottles of wine worth $2.5 million. The incident happened two years ago at a luxury hotel where the couple were staying as guests. The couple fled with the wine but were arrested nine months later at the Croatia and Montenegro border and returned to Spain. None of the wine has been recovered. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. Hey, Tony. Windy day, windy day. Yeah, there's a severe weather warning out, um, as a lot of people might would would know for for most of the state really. But um, it excludes a a, a uh, I don't know how you not a sliver a, a line from near, around Hobart in the lower east up up to through the Tamar up to the northwest that that's the area that doesn't have it and doesn't have the warning and also up into the upper Doon a bit. But everywhere else around the state is under a warning for um, for strong winds that could, could uh, meaning averaging around 50 to 60 kilometres an hour at its worst um, and gusting up perhaps around the 100 kilometre hour level. Um, oh, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, just along the coast, though, it could be a bit long, bit higher, or up to 110, we're expecting, and elevated areas, uh, and especially along the north coast, east of about, De- about Devonport. Okay. Uh, any rainfall of notes uh, yet? Uh, we had, in the 24 hours, we had Mount Reed was, had a fair bit of rain at 45 millimetres. South Queenstown, 37, and Cradle Valley at 35 millimetres. Um, just so there was moderate falls like that uh, around the north and the west. Well, not like that, but I mean, moderate falls around the northwest, not as much as that, but light elsewhere around the state. And since 9am, we've had a few falls into the west. The uh, Henty Canals had six millimetres and Mueller Ridge in the Hewans had four millimetres. Okay, and one of our listeners says 29 mils in the northwest last night and around 60 mils in the last three days. So that sounds like uh, what you were just saying there. Yeah, yeah, and there, there was a bit more coming too with the with the winds. Uh, the shower activity will pick up into the afternoon. It's, it looks like the wind max will be in um, from in, in the next hour or so. It'll start really picking up and uh, it'll be probably through the north around uh, mid-afternoon and then into the evening it'll be, contract up towards Flinders Island and then eventually move off the coast after uh, the early tomorrow. Okay. And after that, what sort of conditions? Uh, after that, the winds will still be strongish on Wednesday but not, not uh, like today, as strong as today. But uh, the, the whole weather systems are just going to gradually ease off as a ridge develops over Victoria Wednesday into Thursday and even into Friday. Uh, and then we'll get quite settled weather from, from well, Thursday onwards, really, uh, into into the weekend and, um, and another high-pressure system's coming over. So this, it'll be this spell of wild weather and then it'll ease off a bit. Okay, and um, are we going to have sunnier conditions or it'll be cloudy or...? Uh, it's like a light westerly, so there'll be, it'll, it'll be um, depends on how much southerly you get into, into Hobart or northerly get into Launceston, but probably to drag the cloud over from the west. But it'll be cloudy in the west, uh, and 
and hit or miss, depending on whether there's a bit of northerly or southerly bringing around the cloud around the mountains, I guess. Yeah. So you yeah. mentioned those wind warnings, uh, Michael. What other warnings are there? Yeah, there's quite a few. So uh, we've got uh, gale warnings out for... for um, oh, excuse me a sec. I just got the wrong one up. Um, we uh, have... There's a sheep grazier's uh, warning, isn't there? Sheep grazier's warning, yeah. Um, and... Oh, I've just lost my spot. Where are we? Computers. What's going on? A lot of wind yeah. warnings too. So gale warnings. Yeah, gale warnings, wind warnings, and we got a sheep grazers warning and a uh... road weather alert. <laughs> no, no, no oh, here we are. I've got it. I've got it. Sorry about that. <laughs> Bushwalkers weather alert yeah. for the western and central plateau. Um, don't go up there. It's, it's going to be cold. Uh, wind. Wind. Um, chill and and some snow about down to 800 meters tonight and tomorrow morning so that wouldn't be good uh, sheep grazers for northwest midlands upper derwent valley southeast forecast districts that severe weather warning and we we have gales about and uh for most areas through for today for gales um all, all coastal waters strong wind warning for all southeast inshore and the lakes south west and central plateau today tomorrow gale warnings for most areas again except uh, for Bank Strait and Franklin Sound and Upper East, and then the Derwent Estuary, Frederick, Henry, Norfolk Bay, Storm Bay and Channel uh, as well, strong wind warning. So very windy next couple of days. Okay. Sorry about that. That's <laughs> all right. Just just for the record then, the coastal waters and swell. Yeah, sure. So for the swells about today, in the western south, we've got a westerly at three to four metres, increasing to four to six metres in the afternoon. Uh, tomorrow, just a westerly at four to six metres. In the north, it's going to increase from around uh, one to two metres at the moment to two and a half to four metres in the afternoon offshore there in the north. It'll be three to four metres tomorrow, easing to two to three in the afternoon. In the east, there's a northeasterly decaying at a one metre today and a south-southwesterly at 0.5 to one metre. Tomorrow, a south-southwesterly at 0.5 to one metre. The winds are northwesterly today at 30, 25 to 35 knots. Increasing to west and northwesterly, 30 to 40 knots throughout from the west, and that's um, from now during the afternoon. Winds are turning westerly in the west in the evening. Tomorrow, westerly winds, 25 to 35 knots, easing to 20 to 30 knots in the afternoon all the way throughout, except in the south and the central north, where it'll be it'll stay up a bit higher. Um, yeah, so they're the winds. Okay. All right, that might do us, Michael. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. All Have the best. Day. You too. Michael Conway from the Bureau. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A weed sprays, hand digging, a council, hundreds of volunteers, the local nature resource management body. There's not many things that haven't been thrown at removing one of the worst weeds in Tasmania's waterways. And they've made great progress in the Rubicon Estuary near Devonport, but it's time to bring in the big guns, as Meg Powell reports. We're at squeaking point um, at the at the end of the jetty um, in Port Sorrel on the on the estuary, and it's it's a really beautiful place. It's one of my favourite spots. It's very peaceful, um, just surrounded by water. This is Claire Jeanette. She's a fresh face on a project that has been 20 years in the making. The battle to rid one of Tasmania's major waterways of the second worst rice grass infestation in the country. Um, we can see the wading birds in the distance and the tides on its way out. Um, it's really lovely. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. And the banks are clear. 
which um, is interesting in, in regards to what we're talking about today, which is rice grass. What is rice grass? <laughs> yeah, sure. So rice grass is a aquatic grass um, that is naturally found in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and it was introduced into Tasmania in the early parts of last century for maybe a number of reasons, um, possibly to stabilise the banks and create channels for boats to get through. But it is invasive. And once it's taken hold, it's just explosively expanded into those estuaries and, and taken over. And that's a really familiar sight for people who have driven uh, over the Rubicon Bridge and have seen that dense grass that is right up to the edge of the river there. Now you've got a program to get rid of that. Tell me about that. How long has it been going for and what is it up to? Yeah, it's pretty amazing, uh, the community efforts that's gone into removing rice grass from the Rubicon estuary. So the Port Sorrel community uh, and the Latrobe Council have been working for close to two decades to try and remove it in any way possible. So early on, it was a lot of hand removal, trying to dig it out with shovels, moved into spraying, um, and now we're up to our uh, third year of spraying um, quite extensively using contractors um, to get out there and try and remove what we can. So those contractors are actually out today. What are they doing? Yeah, so we'll see them out there today on their quad bikes, so moving along the mud flats, and they're trying to find where there's any little pieces of rice grass that have been left. Mark Hedich is one of a two-man team that has spent the last five years spraying and respraying 600 hectares of the invasive weed. We've got the ATV, uh, four-wheeler. Uh, we've got it be four-wheel drive uh, with a spray tank, rescue parts, the uh, four-wheel drive recovery strips. We get bogged quite often. Uh, <laughs> how many times a day do you reckon you get bogged doing this uh, job? Some days not very often and other days all the time. Uh, what do you do if both of you get bogged? Um, yeah we panic a little bit um, <laughs> but we got the winches on the front um, to pull each other out with the winches but yeah, then the recovery tracks come off and if we're both bogged so it gets a little bit hectic some days but you know, it's pretty good. Mark how long have you been working on this project? Uh, we started with uh, rice grass spraying in 2014. Um, we also do it at Duck River in Smithton. Um, we've done some in La Trobe in the Mersey River. So just between the two of you, you've covered this, what, 600 hectares, did you say it was? Yes, yes, and we, we know it pretty well now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say. And I, today you've been going through um, just pinpointing little little bits that have come through. That's right, that's right. Yeah, we spray it all. And David Widger, he works for me, he does all the uh, GPS work. Right. Yeah, so he, he spots it all and then we send all the GPS stuff through to Cradle Coast. Mark, I'm, I'm curious, how does it feel to, to look out and go, this was once covered in rice grass? It's a really good feeling, actually, because um, we have seen this area smothered in rice grass in some places. Um, and to look at it now, and you've got to really try and find some places to find it. It's just, yeah, it's really good. The area is looking good, but they've still got a way to go, including dense meadows of grass that are almost inaccessible. How does it feel then driving over the Rubicon um, Bridge and seeing all that? Uh, you prefer not to look. A bit disheartening, yeah. <laughs> it really wants to doing badly. Um, but uh, Cradle Coast are, are trying to get a way to 
get on top of that. So hopefully in the future it will. Now you've you've brought a map along with you today. It's an aerial view of of the Rubicon estuary. There's a big purple blob that I'm looking at. Is yeah. that's a treated area? That's previously treated um, and is continued to be followed up again. So we don't see it uh, re-expand into those areas. So we I can mean, keep on top of that management. There's a couple of other different coloured blobs on here. What are these? Yeah, so we've got a relatively small, I guess, in comparison, uh, green patch here and that there just marks um, the new area that we're treating this year, south of Squeaking Point. Once we get further up into the estuary, uh, we see really dense meadows of rice grass and particularly up around the Frankford Highway Bridge. Um, if any of the listeners have passed across that before, it's just meadows of rice grass. Um, so we've got a little patch marked on the map there that we're hoping um, to spray airily with a with a drone. Wow. Um, so that will be really exciting. So we're just waiting on the last of the permits to come through for that and we're hoping to trial that this year. So how long has this project got to go? It's already been going about two decades so it's not it's not a quick fix. Yeah it's not a quick fix. There'll be a lot of ongoing management um, moving forward to make sure that the areas that we have treated continue to be rice grass free. Uh, And then once we get up into those dense meadows, uh, we would look at maybe removing about 10% per year. Um, But there's still uh, some decisions to be made on on how that's tackled moving forward. That's Cradle Coast Authority Project Manager Claire Jeanette ending that report by Meg Powell. And you also heard from Hedges Environmental Weed Management's Mark Hedich, who's worked for years to help eradicate rice grass across a portion of the Rubicon estuary. Well, staying in the water and 1,000 razorfish shells made from clay have been buried in a seabed near Kangaroo Island in South Australia to create artificial reefs for native oysters to grow. The island is home to one of the few pockets in the country where native flat and gassy oysters exist after they were over-harvested in the late 1800s. Kangaroo Island Landscape Board and ceramicist Jane Bamford teamed up to replicate the shells and create the new habitats for the threatened species. The Board's Coast Project Officer Alex Comino told Bethany Alderson about the innovative project. Jane was working down here on another project and it was really just a conversation between, at the time, our project lead and, and Jane about how could we create structure and a new substrate that mimics what these native oysters are looking for in the wild naturally. So particularly important was the relationship that the Angazi oyster, the native flat oyster, has with the native pinna or, or razorfish. Because so many of the Angazi oysters have been lost to us. We only see larger populations of the Angazis still persisting where there are pinna or all those razorfish. So we were looking to create an artificial but biodegradable mimic of those razorfish and have them installed on our reef. And then Jane came along and, it, and it, the rest was history really. And you touched on it briefly but why have the reefs been lost over the years? Well, it was sort of in the mid to late 1800s and the early 1900s when the European colonisers were making their way around Australia and what they thought was an inexhaustible supply of oysters, they really believed they'd never see the end of them, were in reality completely exhausted within 100 years. Not only were all the oysters sort of overfished, eaten, but then they also dredged up all that oyster shell that they could crush down to lime for mortar. And by removing that substrate, that means that even though we feel really lucky here on Kangaroo Island, we have just enough adult oysters that, you know, they create millions of larvae that 
float through the water over a year, but there's just nowhere for them to land. Even when they do find somewhere to land, maybe it's on the jetty pylons or, or some other infrastructure, they're generally picked off pretty easily by predators because they're just not very protected. And do you expect the reefs to only attract the native shellfish or will they encourage other species to the habitat as well? Yeah, definitely other, um, well, certainly we'll have other shellfish species coming onto the reefs. We've got scallop farmers over here telling us, oh yeah, you're going to have lots of scallops and yeah, different shellfish species, different oysters. One of the big drivers of this reef project from our perspective was to create more fish habitat, not only for commercial fisheries, recreational fishes, and also for some of those threatened species that we have in our waters. And how long do you expect it to take before you do start seeing signs of new populations? Not long. We've timed the reef build with the natural spawning season of the oysters. So within a few months, you can see them. They do grow quite rapidly and then you can see them with the naked eye. Within a year, they're sort of the size of your palm. And then within about two years, that's when the oysters should be mature enough to start producing their own spawn. So that's when we'll have, hopefully, we'll see a a self-sustaining reef where the oysters that have colonised our reef will start to make their, their own babies. Coast's Project Officer Alex Comino. Ceramicist Jane Bamford says she worked closely with the KI Landscape Board to replicate razorfish shells that are naturally found in the wild. Well, I spent a bit of time looking at razorfish shells. We do have them in Tasmania, but they're not as common as they are in South Australia. Into a project like this, you do quite a lot of research and start to have a look at the form, read all about it, try to understand what ecosystem is. Are all the ceramic shells unique to one another and different shapes and sizes? They are. So each one's handmade. I basically roll out a big slab of clay so it's got some sort of pressure on it to give it some strength and then I cut out those form shapes and then each one's then sort of slumped over like a a mould so it actually takes that sort of concave form. Have you always been drawn to working alongside scientists to produce art? I've been working in clay for 27 years, but about six or seven years ago, I started working on a project with the CSIRO in Hobart, making artificial spawning habitat for the spotted handfish. And from that experience, I realised that there was an ability to work in conservation projects in clay. And since then, that's what I've sort of focused on. That's ceramicist Jane Bamford. Uh, Kangaroo Island Landscaping Board Project Officer Alex Comino also spoke there with Bethany Alderson about creating an artificial reef for Angasi oysters, Angasi oysters at least to breed off the island. On our text line, uh, what have we got? Will says, if Scott's demise is going to impact our nation so drastically, would it be necessary for the Government of Australia, instead of supporting the industry, to actually manage the food supply of the nation like the airlines and railways of past years? Thank you for that, Will. Uh, Alex says, hi, Tony. Regarding Robins Island, migratory shorebirds are protected under clear provisions of the state and national laws and also international conservation agreements. And the EPA will need to justify their approval for the wind farm in the place, when they face at least, of undeniable lethal hazards. Well, talking soil now, and many Tasmanian farmers have been forced to rethink the way they care for their soil on the back of high fertiliser prices. Agricultural consultant Jason Lynch says soil testing is a no-brainer. Most of the soil tests I see, Tasmanian farms are generally quite fertile. It's, it's only unusual circumstances we're chasing fertility. For most producers, it would be maintenance, fertiliser requirements. Every farm's a bit different for soils, intensity, dry land grazing and things like that. So um, you've got to soil test first. 
once you've worked that out and got those numbers. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, we've had three pretty good seasons on the eastern half of the state, so they're probably growing more grass. Crop yields might have been up a bit, grass yields, livestock production. So they've probably been a bit more moved off farm, so they might have to replace a bit more. But the soil test will tell that, yep. So what are some of the limiting factors then in um, soil fertility, given the price hikes in fertiliser in recent years, farmers would be wanting to get more from their nitrogen than, than what they had, say, five years ago. Yeah, so the, the price of all nutrients has gone up. So they've probably spent similar amounts on fertiliser, but they've actually got less for their dollar, if that makes sense. Most people have responded by really making sure their soil pHs are where they should be. So there's probably a lot more lime and dolomite that's been applied across the state. Nitrogen has become very expensive, although it's moderated now, so maybe there might be some more nitrogen coming back in the system. But I think the the fertiliser pricing that we've been through over the last two to three years has made people um, a bit more conscious and a bit more um, questioning of, of and paying attention to what they should or shouldn't put on, I guess. But right now in Tasmanian agriculture, it's it's really buoyant. We've got good markets we've we've had good markets you know most things are pretty good at the moment um so there's a pretty strong incentive to produce more um i think every farm is getting a bit more sophisticated and no doubt look because the market for inputs has gone up people are a bit more conscious which is good because in saying that what we can't have is when things get a bit cheaper in price we can't go back to the status quo and said well it's all right, we can afford to put a bit more extra on. We still need to keep this um, sort of keenness to be efficient with everything that we do. What's your take on using alternative fertilisers like manures, um, biosolids, that sort of thing? Is it recommended to look into at least? Yeah, look, the last few years it's been a very hot topic of conversation. We don't have an abundance of... um, organic products in Tasmania. So if we talk composts, manures, biosolids, bioproducts and things like that, they generally tend to be limited in supply because they're often um, not readily transportable because they're a um, low bulk density. You can get a very large semi-trailer and then when you work out the nutrient loads in there. That notwithstanding, they're great if you can use them and, and get them. And I think if you're in the position where in your district there is a source available to use. You've just got to know the nutrient content, understand all the implications around transport costs. And we talk a fair bit about, um, uh, you know, the, the, the quality of the material, has it been composted correctly, uh, are all the um, biosecurity issues being addressed and things like that. So um, look into it um, and by all means uh, become, uh, become aware of, of what might be around. Would you like to see more research around that too, the use of them and their effectiveness, their, uh, their cost-benefit? Yeah, look, things like composts, biosolids, that's, that's pretty well understood. Get a nutrient test on it, uh, work out the cost of transport, that's all there. I'd just like more of it to be available, I think, and everyone would. Like we, we'd like to see more material get, um, get reused, provided it doesn't have a, a legacy issue. Does it complicate business because of, I don't know, health issues or, or contaminant things like that. But I think everyone would want to see more of it. I think there's a bit of research going on to connecting byproduct manufacturers. The days of putting things in the ground and burying them, it's become expensive to do or not possible to do. So, yeah, I mean, putting that um, 
closing the cycle on, on nutrient availability, supply in and supply out is, is what we should be aiming for. What about leaving paddocks fallow? How helpful is that? Yeah, not very helpful. Um, yeah, no, look, uh, but I get it. Sometimes you've, you know, between perhaps harvesting a poppy crop before grasses get sown, you'll have a, a, a fallow period in there, but um, that should go for maybe a few weeks and not go until next spring. That's that's not very helpful. Jason Lynch from Pinion Advisory speaking there to Larissa Smith at a recent NRM North workshop at Waterhouse in the northeast. Tim Gunn runs a beef and sheep enterprise in that area on the coastal plains between Waterhouse and Tomahawk. He's pulled back on fertiliser inputs because of the price. I'm predominantly a beef farmer. That's probably 70% of my enterprise. And I've got a small wool flock and a small crossbred flock. How would you characterise your soil type here? Most of it's just deep acid sand. So if you put an excavator down and dig down as far as you go, you just hit different forms of sand and that's sort of about it. But I do, I recently purchased a place where I've actually got some sort of more sandy loams and a little bit of clay. So sort of nice to farm with that. So So that topsoil, that that top 20 centimetres, how's that looking coming into autumn? Pretty good, Larissa. I've, I've sort of had a policy or philosophy for a fair while that I've probably renovated a lot of the pastures that were here probably in the first 10 years of farming in my own right and uh, if I've got to renovate a pasture now I tend to do it sort of minimum till and whatever I mean these soils are quite fragile obviously you know as in today it's quite windy you know I'm not that you see it very often now but there's been a history of you know paddocks being buried or fences being buried in this area in the old style of summer fallows and things like that so I just you know and I mean most people have I think in this area have moved away from it and plus I suppose I'm probably to the detriment of being a a carbon farmer if ever ever we are you know I've got fairly high organocarbon levels here and um, so I probably have a lot of room to move as far as all that goes because um, I've probably been you know building them up over the last 20-25 years. How often do you soil test? Annually, probably every six months I do a fair bit of soil testing, yeah. I'm probably a bit old school too, I'd consider myself a fairly high input farmer, I like to pour it on and try and grow as many kilos as I can and I run fairly high stocking rates so you know I jokingly I've had other farmers, I don't know how you sleep at night during the winter time because you know I've sort of get fairly bare and whatever but it's just you know while I'm or you know not that I'm young anymore but you know I've always been prepared to work and that's the way I thought I could make more money and be more profitable and and it's farming's been you know very good to me and you know I've been able to expand my enterprise I'm probably you know from when I first started I'm probably farming you know three or four times the amount of area now so it's been very good to me. The cost of fertilisers has really spiked in the last two years kind of stable now how has that affected your approach to um, what you put on? I have put on probably about as far as total nutrients of P and K uh, I've probably put on about 15% less this year just because of the cost. I do a big chunk of my fertilising in spring but you know commodity prices have been very strong and you know predominantly being in beef it's you know it's been very happy days being a beef farmer up until now yeah i mean i think i think it'll be all right i mean obviously i've got fairly high interest bills now and things like that so all that sort of turning south and obviously all the other costs going up but um 
yeah, I think I think we'll be right. So, how are paddocks set up from the summer rainfall patterns that you've had in the northeast? Well, we had a fantastic spring, like everyone else. It was it was slow. It was you know you sort of kept on waiting for it to to jump out of the ground, and it never really happened. I think it was just cold everywhere. Um, very wet. I mean, basically the rainfall stopped, I think, on about the 20th of November for us. I mean, I think since then, I think we had two mills in December, three mills in January. Um, we had very little in February and then we had a big thunderstorm across most of um, the grazing land and I graze. We had between 30 and 50 mils. So if we can get another rain next weekend or something like that, we might be up and away with a bit of luck. Yeah, Waterhouse Livestock producer Tim Gunn talking to Larissa Smith, looking for some more rain ending the country for today. Don't forget ABC Rural Online and ABC Rural Facebook page. Catch you after midday tomorrow.